There we go. Good to see you tonight. <clears throat> Glad that you're here and uh, join us for another study of the book of James tonight. Um, people have been asking about the board. I realize this is somewhat of a uh, backtrack in technology. Uh, I wanted to keep this visual up on the screen the entire time. There wasn't really a way to do that. And I thought just flipping back and forth and back and forth on the PowerPoint probably be more confusing than helpful. So hopefully this is not more multitasking than I can keep up with. And uh, if I get lost for a moment, bear with me. Hopefully that will not happen. Uh, we're talking about this section of James's letter that is quite the controversial section. And we're going to start by just reading through it. We've got 13 verses to cover, but these 13 verses cover a lot of ground and also take some explanation in order to understand what James is saying. So we're going to just start in verse 14 and read through it for just a moment, make a couple comments as we go, and then we'll come back and, and we'll talk about what's going on over here on this side of the stage. Verse 14, James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So I want to stop right there, and I want to just think about what James is saying. He asks this question, if somebody has faith but does not have works, can that faith that does not have works save him? And we need to qualify that. When he says, can faith save him, he's saying faith without works. Can faith without works save a person? And then he gives this analogy. And this is not the point of his writing, but it's an analogy to illustrate his point. Let's say that somebody has compassion for someone who is or hungry or is cold. And you say to that person, man, I really feel for you. I hope that you find something to eat, and I hope that you find something warm. What has your compassion done for that person? What good has it done? The answer is nothing. You may have a good feeling toward that person, but until that feeling is mixed and coupled with action, it does nothing for the person. So his illustration is this. If you have faith, and by faith he means something that's going on in the mind, in the heart, you have a belief, but it does not... Uh, it's not manifest with some type of fruit or produce. He says that faith, can it save that person? And then he makes this statement. This is a very strong statement in verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We're going to come back to that later. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my work. So notice the quotations. And again, the translator has done this to help us understand what's going on here. So this is the proposed statement. He says, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. And so, and then James is responding to that statement by saying, well, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, if you really have faith, where's the evidence? Prove it. Anybody can say, well, I have faith. Well, he says, prove it. Show me your faith. Well, how can I show you something that's here or here? You can't see here, can you? But you can see what's happening out here. And what's happening out here is evidence of what's happening in here. And that's his point. Faith is made evident. It is shown by what I do, not just by what I profess to believe. And he says, you believe there's one God? Well, you do well. Even the devils believe and tremble. 
Do you think that there is any devil who does not believe that God exists? Do you think there's any devil that doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Are they saved? No, what, why? What is the fruit of their belief? They rebelled against God. They're wicked, they're evil. And so the produce that they have is not the kind of faith that would save them. And, and, and I like this phrase, you do well, because really what he's saying is, well, good for you. <laughs> you believe there's one God? Well, good for you. So do the devils. But they're not saved. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And so this is sort of a strange phrase. Do you want to know, O oh foolish man? He's really saying, do you want to see some evidence, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Well, let's think about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Well, this is curious, isn't it? This is very curious. Because Paul uses this same logic in Romans chapter 4 to say Abraham was not saved by works. And the proof text of that is Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, that's pretty confusing, isn't it? That's pretty confusing. James says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot. Oh, there's a, some more controversy. Rahab the harlot. Here mentioned as a beacon of faith. Rahab the harlot, he says, was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And we're going to come back to this later. Does James 2, 14 through 26 contradict Paul's teachings? It sure sounds that way, doesn't it? Because we know emphatically that Paul teaches that one is justified by faith without works. And James is saying you can't be saved by faith alone Works must be present and connected and together with faith to make that faith perfect and living and active. So do they contradict? Well, first, let's just look at some of Paul's teachings. You know, one of the reasons we're going to do this is because James is one of the most controversial letters in the New Testament. Did you know that? In fact, there's a whole lot of people within Christendom, to use that term sort of loosely, uh, that believe that James's letter doesn't even belong in the Bible. Martin Luther was one of those people, and Martin Luther said this. He said, we know we should throw the epistle of James out of this school. And he was in a school of learning at that time. And he said, for it doesn't amount to much. He actually called it a letter of straw, is what he called James's letter. He says it contains a not a syllable about Christ, which is not true. Not once does it mention Christ except at the beginning. I maintain that some Jew wrote it who probably heard about Christian people but never encountered any. Since he heard that Christians placed great weight on faith in Christ, he thought, wait a moment, I'll oppose them and urge works alone. This he did. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Because a lot of people feel the same way that Martin Luther did. They read James's letter and they read this particular, just this section of James actually. They don't read the whole letter and, and determine this. They read this section that we're looking at tonight and go, well, James is a heretic. I mean, he said you're saved by works, and we know that Paul wrote over and over that you're not saved by works and you're saved by faith. And so Martin Luther, he didn't see some evidence in the, in the canon or in the manuscripts to suggest that James was not part of the Bible. He just read what he wrote and couldn't fathom it and said, he must be a heretic. We should throw it out. It's not even about Christ. In fact, he's probably never even met a Christian. 
It's just some disgruntled Jew. Is that true? No, it's not true. And so I, to, to, in order to compare James with Paul, we're going to have to look through some of Paul's teachings tonight. So Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now I'm going to scribble all over this board, so please, please uh, bear with me on that. Hopefully it's more helpful than it is a distraction. Here's what Paul says. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he says this, that is not of yourselves. How, what, where's it come from? He says it is a gift from God. How? Through Jesus Christ. And he says it's not of works. We are not saved by works. And it is not of yourselves. That is evident, isn't it? It's evident from this passage. We get a whole lot of details about salvation just in this small section of Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Would anybody boast if they could save themselves? Well, sure they would. They'd say, look at how good I am. Look at all the good things that I've done. Look how righteous that I am. And Paul said, that's not the way it works. Salvation is through God's grace, through his favor. It is from God, and it's through our faith. We are saved by faith without works. Amen? Amen. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Who wrote the book of Titus? Paul did. What did Paul say? He said, but when the kindness and the love of God... Our Savior toward man appeared, not of works of righteousness. Here it is again. He says, you're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his notice, his mercy. What is his mercy? It's his grace. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So Paul taught Titus the exact same thing that he wrote to the Roman brethren, the same thing he wrote at Ephesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, here's where the problem lies. Paul said if Abraham was justified by works, he could have boasted about it, but we know that's not true. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to righteousness. And here's what James says, Do you want proof, O man, O foolish man, that you're justified by faith and works? Well, Abraham's the proof because he was saved by works. See, that's where it sounds like that contradicts each other, doesn't it? Well, let's try to understand and what we, what we need to understand is James is talking about something completely different than Paul is. Now, they're both talking about salvation. They're both talking about works. They're both talking about faith. But they're writing to different people about different issues. And I hope before the night is over that we'll all see that very clearly. But I know on the surface when we read this, it just looks like they're on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's exactly why Martin Luther said what he said. He said that James couldn't have even known a Christian. And so it ends up being this sort of Paul versus James. And, and who's really right and who's going to win? Well, okay, first of all, we need to clear that out of our mind. But have you ever heard somebody say, you know what, Peter is a heretic. We should throw out the writings of Peter because Peter wrote something that was in opposition to Paul. Have you ever heard that? Did Peter ever say anything that sounds similar to what James said? Well, actually he did when he was preaching there in Acts chapter 10, talking to Cornelius and all those in his household. He said, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by God. Why don't we have a problem with Peter? When Peter said, we know that God accepts all those who work righteousness. Well, I thought that salvation was not of works. It's not. It's not. And you say, yeah, but you, you're, you're not reading the context of that. That's my point. That's my point. we got to read the context to understand what's going on. So what did Paul teach in his letters? What was Paul's point? 
Why was he saying what he was saying and to who was he saying it to? That was pretty redundant, but we'll just go with it. Paul's main focus of his letters is righteousness. And for us to understand this entire discussion, we need to understand what Paul means when he says righteousness. What was he speaking about? So what is righteousness? Number two, who is righteous? And number three, where does righteousness... (coughs) Excuse me. Where does righteousness come from? So let's just look at the words that are used. Number one, uh, this word is dikaiosune. You say, why are you trying to pronounce that? I'll tell you why in a minute. This word comes from 1342. Now this word means equity. Okay, equity of character or act specifically. Strong says it means Christian justification and it's translated righteousness. In fact, that word is multiple times in the scripture. So, What can we learn about this? Well, we know there's a word that's translated righteousness, which he defines as Christian justification. More about that in just a moment. Now, there's several different forms of this word, dika yosune. So this is dika yo-o. Instead of yosune, it's just yo-o. So it's a shortened form of the same word and from the same word. It means to render, that is to show or regard as just, that's equitable, or innocent okay now what does justification mean it means to render innocent that's what it means it means an acquittal of guilt so third word dik sis so very similar words here this is actually from this word this word is from this word this is the root word of this word it means acquittal notice for Christ's sake and it's translated as justification so, another word we use, acquittal, is pardon, okay? What are, the, what are these all pointing at? They're pointing at salvation. So, why am I going through all of this? Well, because when Paul says, for by grace you are saved, when he says saved, here's what he means. By grace, you are pardoned, you are acquitted, you are justified by God, you are made righteous. Now, here's the problem. All of these people, they think something very different than that. And so these Jews are thinking there's a way to work to get from here over to here. And what is that work? What is the work that can be done that can get you from here to here? Well, they said, well, that's the law. If you'll follow the law and you'll do enough good things, then you can work your way from this state over here to this state over here. And here's what Paul's saying. That is of yourself. That is earned. That is something a person could boast about. But see, the righteousness, the salvation that God gives, it doesn't fit on this trail. In fact, there is no trail. This trail doesn't work. You never get from here to here. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Notice that he marries all of these various terms together. And here in Romans chapter 4, he says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted... For righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So notice all of these different and various words that are pointing to salvation. He uses the word justify, which means to clear from guilt. The word righteousness, which we just looked at a moment ago, Christian justification. He uses this phrase, lawless deeds are forgiven, sins are covered. What is he pointing to? Acquittal and pardon. 
And finally, he says, the Lord does not impute sin. What does that mean, does not impute sin? It means he doesn't count that person's sin against them. Now, has somebody ever sinned against you? Yes, right? Somebody sinned against you. And when you forgave them, what did you mean? I will no longer count it against you. Did they sin? Yes. Did it happen? Yes. Do we remember it happened? Yes. So really they're guilty. We've just decided they're not guilty. Well, why? Because we've decided to count them as not guilty. And here's the thing. When God counts us as not guilty, he's just imputing righteousness to us. It's not something that we have earned through our performance or through our keeping of works or law. It's not something we gain through the goodness that we have. It's something that God gives us by his grace through Jesus Christ in accordance to our faith or our belief. Notice again, God justifies the ungodly. Why? Because we're lawless and we're sinful. This is where we're at. This is where we're at without Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, you'll never move from here over to here. It won't happen. Does everybody agree with that? We cannot be justified and pardoned without Jesus Christ. Why? Because not a one of us is righteous. Not one person is innocent. Not one person is pure. Not one person is free. And, and we're not going to get into a long discussion about kids and all that, but I just want to make the point that nobody that has a, a, a amount of cognizance and maturity about them that understands right and wrong can say, God, I'm righteous. I'm good. Nobody can say that. And so we got a problem. Everybody is over here and needs to be over here. So what's Paul's answer? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now listen to this. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that means a reconciling factor, to demonstrate what? To demonstrate his righteousness, that's the righteousness of God. And so God demonstrates his own righteousness, his justice, his equity by saying, I'm going to forgive man's sin, but in doing so, I must pay for sin. I must redeem that sin. Where's the redemption down here? There is none. So how could God be righteous in forgiving sin through this method? He can't. This is man trying to find his own righteousness. That's not what we need. We need God's righteousness. We need God to count us as right and just and sinless. But see, God gets to decide the terms. And God said, the terms are this. I paid for sin. You're only going to get this over here through this. You're not going to get it through this. And Paul's combating that idea. You know why? Because all these saved Gentiles are being told by the Jews, hey, you don't need to go through this. You need to go through this. Oh, I know you've gone through this already, but let's go through this. And the problem is it erases Christ from the equation. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 20, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness is by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you can be saved this way, then why did Jesus die? Answer, for no reason at all. This is what Paul's combating. 
He's writing to these churches, and mostly his audiences are Gentile. So when you read through Romans, you read through Galatians, you read through Ephesians, you read through Colossians, you read um, the Hebrew letter, this is the thing that he's dealing with. Are people wanting to go back to, the Moses, back to Moses' law to find their righteousness? And he says it's not possible because righteousness comes as a result of faith in the Redeemer. Faith in Jesus Christ. Can you be saved without faith? No. And that's his point. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works which we have done. God sent Jesus to die on the cross to demonstrate at this present time also his righteousness. Why? That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where's boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, listen, apart from what? Deeds of the law. When Paul was talking about not being saved by work, he was talking about a very specific heresy. That you could be saved without this. You needed to be saved through this down here. And he says, that's not possible. You can't be saved this way. You need to abandon this and go back to this. Look toward Jesus. Don't look within. Don't look toward Moses. We know what God said to Peter and James and John on the mountain. When Jesus was glorified, he said, let's build three temples. One to you, one to Moses, one to Elijah. And what did God say? This is my son. Hear him. What was God saying? Don't look toward Moses. Don't look toward the prophets. You look at Jesus. These people were looking back at Moses. And then they were looking here to see if they were good enough. You know what the answer is? No, you're not. You're not good enough. Because good enough is not what righteousness is. Righteousness is not, I've reached a level of goodness that God now accepts. Righteousness is God looks at me and doesn't count my sin against me. He's acquitted me, he's pardoned me, he's justified me. That's righteousness. That's their fundamental misunderstanding. They didn't understand righteousness. How do we know that? Well, he even brings it to a head in Romans chapter 10. Notice, he said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for who? Israel is that they might be saved. Why do you say that? Because they're not saved. Now, there were some of them that were saved. They're called the remnant. You can read about that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. The remnant. Who were the remnant? They were the ones that accepted Jesus. They were the ones that believed in Jesus. They were the ones that had faith toward Jesus. But there were some that didn't have faith toward Jesus. And listen, Israel is not the nation of God today. It's not. It's not the nation of God. The church is the nation of God. We are the holy nation. And it's not that God doesn't love the people in Israel. He loves everybody. He loves the whole world. But listen, Israel rejected God's son, and Paul is lamenting that by saying, that's exactly what I want for them to do, but they won't do it. Why? He says, I bear them record, or I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but it's out of ignorance. It's not according to knowledge. What were they ignorant about? He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God they've rejected the gospel and instead they're seeking righteousness through their own works their own deeds and you know what people are left with when they try to seek their own righteousness they're weighed in the balance and they're found wanting because they have no means of being covered and acquitted and pardoned no means we even read about this in Antioch in Acts 15 and 1, a certain man came down from Judea and taught the brethren, certain men rather, plural, 
came down from Judea and taught the men, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, what's that? That's this right here. Who are they talking to? People that had already submitted themselves to this right here. They're talking to people who are Christians. Oh, yeah, that's good up there, but you got to do this too. Or you can't have this. They already had this. But it went even further than that. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So they took it even further. So when you read through Paul's letters and you're seeing all this about the law and about circumcision, you know what that's about? This right here. He's not trying to reinforce those things. He's trying to say, move away from those things. He even told the Galatians, I'm afraid for you because you want to go back to this system. Why? Because you're frustrating the grace of God. You're taking your emphasis and your focus off of Jesus and upon, upon God's righteousness and his gift, his free gift, and you're putting it back on performance. And performance will never get you from here to here. Not once. So finally, talking about Paul's teaching, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, 21. I think this verse, uh, set of verses out of all verses, to me, help explain what righteousness truly is and where it comes from. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19 through 21. That is that God was in Christ or was working in Christ. What was he doing? Reconciling the world unto himself. Do you see that? He's a propitiation, the atoning factor. God was in Christ reconciling the world, the sinful world, to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what this is down here? It's an ignoring of the word of reconciliation. It's an ignoring of the gospel. He says, now then we, as ambassadors... For Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you, or we beg of you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? He says, see, God was in Christ working reconciliation, bringing the world to himself, and we are ambassadors of Christ, and it's like God speaking through us, and we're talking to you in Christ's stead, and here's what we say to you. Be reconciled to God. How? Not that, but listen very closely, verse 21. For he has made him... That's Jesus, sin. He made him sin. Not he made him commit sin. He made him into sin. He made him who knew no sin, who was innocent, who was already over here, Jesus. He didn't need pardon, but he was righteous already. He made him who was righteous, guilty. What's that mean? He counted sin against Jesus. Why? So that we, who are sinful and ungodly, could be made the righteousness of God in him. The only way that sinful man is righteous is to be given a righteousness he does not deserve. And that righteousness is not ours. And we never need to forget that. There's a whole room full of righteous people in this room tonight. That righteousness is not yours. It is Christ's. And he put it on you. And he counts it on you. But in reality, we are guilty and we are sinful. But God views us the righteousness of his son and instead placed our guilt upon Jesus. That's what Paul's writing about. Okay, so we went through all that. Why do we go through all that? We're talking about James 2. It's not going to take us long to get through James chapter 2. We already went through most of it and we're going to explain some of it as we end. But let's go back really quickly and establish some facts. Righteousness is being declared as innocent or just. We can never do enough good works to be acquitted from our guilt. 
Number three, righteousness comes from God through Christ, not from man. Receiving acquittal is through our faith in Christ. And number five, we cannot be righteous without Christ. Would anybody argue with that? Neither would James. Neither would James. James agrees with all those things. He's not making a case that you're saved this way instead of this way. You know what he's saying? We understand this, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's all James is saying. Don't think that when you understand that you're saved by faith, that ma- that means it just happens in here. That's not true. Someone says, you have faith, and I have works. He says, show me your faith. Show me the evidence of your belief. How do you know if somebody believes? How does God know if somebody believes? You say, well, he can look in the heart and he can determine that. Well, that's true, he could, couldn't he? But see, that's not good enough for God. He wants to see your faith. How do you know that? I say, James too. You say, well, we, we're still not sure James isn't a heretic. Okay, we're getting there. Show me your faith, he says. You have faith? Show it to me. So what's James talking about? A faith that can be seen. That's what he's talking about. And then he says this. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? What faith is he saying will not save a person? Did James say you're not saved by faith? No, he says you're not saved by faith that's not seen. You're not saved by faith that is dead. James never says you're not saved by faith. Not one time. People read into that. In fact, he says something quite different. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Is he saying Abraham was not saved by faith? Well, it'd be pretty dumb to say that and then quote that Abraham believed God because that's not what he's saying. He's not saying Abraham was not saved by faith. He's saying Abraham was not saved by faith alone. He wasn't saved by just believing in here, but his faith was living. It was seen. It was active. And Abraham's faith can be seen in what he did in response to what he believed because of what God told him. And notice, Abraham believed God and it was what? He doesn't say it made him righteous. He said God counted him righteous because of his faith. He didn't say his faith made him righteous. (laughs) He didn't say his works made him righteous. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. He's saying faith and his works together made faith complete. And that's why he says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. He's not making a contention that we're not saved through Jesus Christ. It's not what he's saying. He's saying all this, yes, but don't think that this is just here. This must be living and seen and active. Now, does the rest of the Bible agree with this? Yes, it does. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. What was being preached here? The word of reconciliation. The very word that we know we're saved through faith. And what was said? He preached Jesus' death for sins. He preached his resurrection. He preached the prophets. He gets to this point where when the Jews hear this message, it says they were cut to the heart. Did they believe? They believed. They were cut to the heart. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, listen, if we take the position of a lot of people, at this point we'd say Peter's correct response is to say, nothing, you've already been cut to the heart, you already believe in Jesus, that's good enough. What did he say though? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? The remission of sins. 
This is what Peter said they needed to do to be justified. Repent and be baptized. You say, that's works. You're right, that's works. But not these works and not on this road. Because remember, this road ignores Jesus. This one over here is being done because of Jesus. These works were not being done because of what Jesus did. They weren't focused on Jesus Christ. They were focused on making this good. This is just being done because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. So repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn away from something and toward something. Turn toward what? Jesus. Is that action? You better believe it. And any of you in here who've repented know that repentance takes a choice. It takes action, doesn't it? It takes action. Why do we do that? Why does anybody repent? Because we believe. Why would anybody be baptized? Because we believe. Is it a work? Well, I guess you could call it a work if you wanted to. Is it a work like this? Someone says, well, yeah, that's of yourself. Well, how? We're actually taught quite the opposite. Notice what Jesus says in Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized. You see how works are wrought with faith and together with faith they're made complete. He who believes and is baptized. Believes what? The gospel. He's saying if you believe the gospel and you believe, you believe and you're baptized, you will be what? Saved. And here we are again. What was Jesus teaching about? When the message of reconciliation is preached towards sinful man, if he responds to that by believing and being baptized, he'll be saved. Same thing Paul wrote about. Same thing James wrote about. Jesus said, you got to act. you got to act. Finally, listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Was Peter a heretic? Peter said, baptism saves us. How? This way? No. Listen to what he says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Your body gets wet in baptism, right? It may wash off some dirt. That's not the point, though. You can wash off dirt in whatever bath you want to. That's not the point of baptism. What is baptism? He says it is an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why did I draw the arrows that way and this way? For this reason right here. When you're getting salvation here, you're trying to take yourself from here to here. But that's not what needs to happen. You need to be here and you need to ask here. You need to appeal. And salvation, you don't go from here to salvation. Salvation comes from God to you. How do we appeal to God? How do we ask of God? Give me this, God. Give me a good conscience. Make me righteous. Justify me. Equip me. Pardon me for my sins. Clear the inner man, not the outer man. Cleanse the inner man. How do we do that? He says that's what baptism is. Baptism is not a work of righteousness which we do. Baptism is an appeal to the gracious and merciful God to cleanse us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a work, but it's through this, not through this. It is a work. And this is where James is talking about up here. He's not talking about this. Abraham believed. How do you know? He offered Isaac. Rahab believed. How do you know? The evidence. That's what James said. Guess who else said that? Paul. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. Would you say that Noah would say he did some work in making the ark? <laughs> More work than I've ever done. <laughs> More work than we could do. By faith, Abraham obeyed. And he left his home. And later he offered Isaac. Isaac blessed his sons because of his faith. Jacob blessed his sons. Moses' parents, because of their faith in God, hid him for three months so he wouldn't be killed. Moses chose affliction 
and suffered with the people of God and he left Egypt not willing to be called Pharaoh's son and then later left Egypt with all the children of Israel and then he kept the Passover. That's all in Hebrews chapter 11. The children of Israel circled Jericho seven times till the, till, till the city walls fell. Why? Because of their faith and their belief in God. And then finally, guess who else is in the hall of faith? Rahab the harlot who received the spies. And every time we see somebody, faith, faith, faith. I'll tell you what else we see. Faith, living faith. Faith, active faith. Faith, a faith that can be seen. That's what James is writing about. James is not a heretic. He's not contradicting what Paul said. He's writing toward a view of Christ. Paul is writing toward Christ and also toward this view right here. James isn't even discussing this. He's not even talking about this. It's not in his letter. He's not, he's not looking toward this. He's not combating that. But Paul was. James is combating the opposite extreme that, oh, I'd say by my faith, all I have to do is believe in Jesus. And I'll tell you, we got a lot of people there today that think just because they believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and they said a prayer that they're going to be saved. And I'll tell you, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches quite the opposite. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The answer is no, no. You can't just believe in here and not do anything out here. You can read your Bible. You can memorize every scripture that your mind can possibly consume. And if you don't apply that in your life, it is of no profit to you. You know what? That's exactly what we read in the first chapter. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is... He observes himself, then he goes his way and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Not only do you have to repent, not only do you have to be baptized into Jesus Christ, but listen, you must give your life to him. You must read his word daily. You must read his word, and when you read it, you memorize it, and you put it in your heart. And that heart flows out in your life, and it changes the way you think, the way you speak, and the way you act. It's the evidence that we are servants of Jesus Christ. You must have a living, visible faith to please God. Last scripture, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Paul didn't teach anything different. This is what Paul wrote. Therefore, having these promises. What promises are you talking about? It's right here. Therefore, having these promises that God will make us his people and he'll be with us and he'll be our God. He says, let us cleanse ourselves. From all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying that a man can do this. When he says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, he's saying, turn away from sin. Quit living in sin. Separate yourself from the worldliness. And you need to move toward God. Why? Because we fear God. Yes, this is a powerful motivator. It should be the motivator in our life. But you know what? We don't need to forget this. Because here's the reality. When God comes back to judge, you know who else he's going to judge? The unfaithful. The unfaithful. That's exactly what the Hebrew writer writes about. God expects his people to follow him. Not just believe he exists, but that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We pursue after God. We don't turn away. This is not enough. If it is, it's like a lifeless corpse. I know that's morbid, but that's his point. A lifeless corpse. No activity, no profitability, no breath, no life. If that faith is this, but it's not this, that's all it is. It's lifeless, and it's meaningless. And God expects better from his people. You know what? That's the kicker. Who's James writing to? 
He's not writing to a bunch of people who are over here that need to be over here. He's writing to a bunch of people already over here that they need to have this right here. He's not telling them how to be saved. He's telling them how to live now that they are saved. And saying get busy and get to living and be active. The lesson's yours tonight. Hope there's been something of help to you this evening. If you're over here, you don't want to be over there when Jesus comes back. You want to be here. And if you want that and you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, prove it. Prove that you believe Jesus is the Son of God by giving your life to Him and being buried with Him in the waters of baptism. Appeal to God for that good conscience and God will give it to you. He'll wipe away every sin that you've ever committed. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? You know what, if, if you're already over here, but maybe you've been living like you're over here. Maybe you've been focusing on this and taking your eyes off of this. I don't know your heart, but you do and so does God. And if you've been living in a way that is not representative of the faith in Jesus Christ, change your life. Turn your heart toward God. Take action tonight. Show God your faith. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing.